0: Well, greetings in Jesus' name to everyone here this morning. It's good to be in the house of God again, even though there's some that were not able to come this morning. But I trust we can, by God's grace, be fed and uh, encouraged this morning. message for this morning I have entitled The Christian and Culture. The Christian and Culture and it um, is something I've considered speaking on for quite some time and um, a few weeks back as we were in Ohio for that orientation on the Salt and Light program, the uh, topic was addressed there. Um, on the impact that culture has, and it it relates to how we go about our mission work. We talk about cross-cultural missions, meaning that many times, most times, as we go out in various parts of the world, we will encounter different cultures than we are accustomed to. And there's a lot of, uh, shall I say, disagreement uh, as to how a culture should be approached when we attempt to address uh, them and attempt to preach the gospel. So I'd like to just talk about some of the Uh, realities that we face in this matter of culture. It also pertains to the things that we ourselves believe and practice. Culture is, I'll define it here this morning, and I'm taking uh, this directly from the session that Gary Miller had. There would be probably different ways you could state this, but culture is simply the beliefs, values, and behaviors shared by a group of people. (coughs) And another way of saying it is the way a group of people have learned to deal with life. We're going to talk a bit more about beliefs, values, and behaviors. But in general... Culture is simply the collection of all the things that are common in a certain group of people. Now, we could, we could say accurately that we as a church here have a culture. A very small, uh, maybe small sphere of culture, we might say, but nevertheless, there is a particular culture. And it may be uh, a portion of a larger culture, perhaps, of other churches that we identify with. And sometimes we use the term uh, Anabaptist to refer to the values that we hold, beliefs, values, and therefore behaviors, that are similar to others who have similar views. And I don't think that's inaccurate, I think it's we could talk about the Anabaptist people and there is a certain culture that is associated with that. It's not precise and exact and you may not be able to define it in all its boundaries, but it's there. The entire American culture has certain aspects, but in that culture there are people from many different backgrounds who have their own version of culture, and they may adhere to the American culture in a great part or assimilate into it, or they may attempt to retain the identity and operate in a very different culture. But when we as God's people go about presenting the gospel, uh, it will be somewhat cross-culturally. If we would say accurately, I think, that we have a culture here in our fellowship, we would have to say that it differs in some uh, fairly significant ways even from the culture of the folks that live in Wellman. Even though geographically we live here and we also share many things in culture with them but there's also some difference of culture. When we go across the ocean to a different people group that speak a different language, eat different foods there's probably a considerably different culture. Now putting this in a biblical perspective, how Do we as Christians relate to other cultures when we go to evangelize? And there is out there among the uh, evangelical churches this concept that we don't attempt to change their culture, we just adapt to it or even encourage to identify with it in every way possible so as to not be a hindrance to the gospel, and we just share Jesus with them. But is that really what God had in mind? For missions? I don't think so. But that is a teaching that's out there and I would like to just look at some baby, biblical principles and help us to sort through um, Now, <laughs> that comes down to some really practical ways, too. And I don't know if, uh, how many of you have read in the last, I believe it was the last issue of the Remnant magazine. Uh, the article there entitled, What Gospel Are We Living? question mark, And it was written by Barry Grant, who uh, spends time in Haiti. And I'd like to just read several paragraphs because it addresses a certain aspect of this issue. What gospel are we living? And he begins the article this way. I was enjoying a Sunday afternoon meal at a mission when I was asked, Barry, what do you do here in Haiti? I replied, well, the first two years I went from church to church preaching and teaching. We traveled all over Haiti and preached in more than a hundred churches. Now, for the past year, we have started a church that I am pastoring. Also, we have picked out some other churches that we are assisting. We are preaching for them, holding Bible studies or anything else the local pastor needs help with. Then came the famous question. You're not trying to make Mennonites out of them, are you? I hear this statement from many Anabaptist missions here in Haiti. The first time I heard it, I was confused. Why would Mennonites be on the mission field, but say they're not trying to make Mennonites out of their disciples? So I ask, what do you mean by that? The response disappointed me. You don't think people need to live like we do to get to heaven, do you? I replied, well... I am not a Mennonite, however, we do the things we do because we believe the Bible tells us to, not just because we are Mennonites or any other group. So in answer to your question, yes, I do believe people need to live the same way that we do to get to heaven. Now I'll stop reading there, and he had some very interesting things to say further. But it puts the issue and question a bit into focus here. Why do we do the things we do and do we believe in them? And is it required to get to heaven? And there are a lot of different answers people have come up with uh, to that question. And I think it's one that we uh, need to grapple with. Why do we do the things we do and Are we going to adhere to them and stand firm on them, or are they negotiables? And going into a different culture, how how do things change when you go into a different culture? let's get back a bit to our definition of culture and talk about some of the things um, in regard to, to culture and how the scriptures speak about it. I'm going to lay out several principles. One is that cultures are not neutral. And two, cultures have consequences. These are two that I took from Gary Miller's teaching. Cultures are not neutral. And cultures have consequences. Now Gary made it clear that the gospel is intended to transform cultures, and I think we need to be very clear on that. The gospel is intended to change our beliefs, our values, and our behaviors. Those things need to change to be in accordance with God's Word and why do they need to change? It's because this world system which um, is the overriding principle that that affects cultures is not in accordance with God's will and God's Word. Now we read about the, the world in the scriptures. and let me just give you several verses that we often speak of. Romans 12:2, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God." Second Corinthians 5:17, "Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. And we get from that the clear principle of a transformation, a change from old to new. And it's very different. We are a new creature. that's That's a major change. But would it be correct to insert the word culture in here? Be not conformed to this culture. Well, there we have a little problem of terms. They're not exactly interchangeable. Because culture, as the term is generally used, if you were to read mission literature and, have, and come across his teaching that we must adapt to their culture, It's not totally synonymous with the term the world as it's used in Scripture, but there is a lot of crossover. Let me just explain that as a believer in the world, though we are clearly admonished not to be conformed to this world, not to love the world, yet Jesus in his prayer to the Father Said, I pray not that thou wouldest take them out of the world, but that thou wouldest keep them in the world. So we are in the world, but not of the world. And yet, as Paul also said, as using the things of this world and not abusing it. So it is clear that this world and this world system are under the dominion of Satan, and therefore they are... a a broken, or they produce broken cultures. And I'd like to just draw a few diagrams on the board here. Um, Let me see if I get this. And you may remember me speaking about this a bit when I was sharing concerning the, uh, the orientation there. Um, a worldview would refer primarily to our beliefs, the things, how we see life. Um, and a worldview, certain worldviews, will produce a culture. The way that people... View things is affects their uh, practice and their behavior, and that becomes a culture. The culture generally tends to reinforce the worldview. And people living in this culture, the culture tends to produce more people that have the same worldview. And if you have the same worldview, it reinforces what's happening in the culture. Uh, that's just a... a uh, is how the system works, if you want to call it a system, but what happens when you have then a broken worldview and the clearest one we could say there, a broken worldview is a worldview that does not recognize or have a fear of God. And that actually is most of the world. They have no fear of God before their eyes. And therefore, a broken worldview is going to create what? A broken culture. And that reinforces the broken worldview and produces more of it, and so on. The gospel changes a person's worldview. When a person gets reconciled to God... He now has a fear of God and that changes his worldview, how he views life and all the things pertaining to it. That's going to produce a different kind of culture, actions, um, values. Those change. Now back to the comparison of terms to culture and the world. Now, the world out there has its value systems and so on, but culture being a little broader than just the beliefs and so on, that's where things can get confusing. And I'd just like to stress again that you cannot just interchange culture and the world. And you know, you can't turn to the scripture and say, love not the world, and then say, well, that means when we go into a different culture, we can't. We can't do anything they have because it's evil. Um, No, if we're talking about culture, we're talking about more than just um, how they view uh, spiritual things. As we look at this uh, question then, how do we as God's people relate to culture? I'd just like to say that we need to discern in a particular culture, especially our own, first of all, what things that are okay and what things are not okay. For example, we... Uh, have a different value system than the world. Let me read another verse, or several verses actually, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. It says that he, speaking of the believer, "...no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God." For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it's strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Now, pretty much everything in this list is embedded in a culture and God calls us out of that evil manner of living and calls us to a different kind of living and the people around you, the ones you were once a part of are going to see that you live a different life and we could even call that a different culture. Um, There's a reason behind that new culture that goes beyond just Just living, there's a purpose for it. But again, cultures are not neutral and cultures have consequences. The culture we have grown up in, most of us, was in its initial beginnings... We could think back, we're in America and it has a certain political system. If you go back to the beginning of our country, many of the values, even the way the government was set up, and the majority of the population adhered to what is often referred to as Judeo-Christian values and value system. Meaning that the Jewish system and the Christian system have certain values and things they they hold as uh, important. Some of those were reflected in the Constitution. They consider all men to be created equal. Well, that is rooted in the Scriptures. Now that doesn't mean that all of the people in that system then became godly because they held to certain good values. But, for example, the idea that all men are created equal is very different from the worldview and system that is produced by Hinduism. Hinduism says that fate has determined what your lot in life is and they have divided their society into certain castes they call them. You born into that caste, that's the situation you're in for life. And there's the lower class and the middle and the higher. And that was uh, determined by your previous life. They believe in reincarnation. Does that impact their culture, their beliefs in reincarnation? Yes. It impacts how they interact with the people around them. And they will treat people of the lower class in a different way than they treat people of the higher class. Now, that is a very broken system. When you look at the scriptures and teach that we should treat others as we ourselves would want to be treated, that does away with the entire caste idea. But when it becomes so ingrained into a culture, it tends to affect people. Now, when a person gets born again in such a culture and his worldview changes and he begins to realize that all of us are made of one blood, God has created all men to be equal, the very things that we find in the Constitution in the United States, it begins to change their behavior but it may not necessarily change the culture all around them. The, uh, the early church had a major issue of cultures colliding, if you will, between the Jew and the Gentile. And if you've ever thought that the culture between an Anabaptist worldview and a non-Anabaptist worldview creates problems... Well, just understand that the differences between the Jew and the Gentile were far greater. So these should be easy and simple issues to deal with. Um, not sure that they always are, but by comparison, when we read the scriptures, it says clearly that Christ broke down the middle wall of partition between the two to make of twain one new man, And from that, we can gather that people of every tribe and nation and tongue should be able to be unified together in the family of God. (coughs) But back to cultures. Let's, Let's look at culture as a, I'm going to draw a circle here, and we'll say this is the culture that's around us. But what tends to happen in most any culture and over time is that there is a subculture. And generally it's a downward progression, possibly toward evil. But this subculture begins to have more and more influence on the general culture and eventually Most of this culture gravitates toward the subculture. And then, out of that, there is another subculture developed. And as the normal progression goes, it again begins to influence the larger culture. And in time, the general culture begins to look more like this. You might call that the subculture. You could look at the rise and decline of civilizations and you will see this pattern repeating itself. Um, You study the history there of Sodom. There's not a whole lot there about the history, but it eventually got so bad that God destroyed it. And what was the reason for their judgment? It talks about the conditions. They were a prosperous people. They had fullness of bread. They had idleness. And then they degenerated into some very immoral actions and it became a part of their culture. Now as Christians... When we're thinking of culture, there are certain things we have in common with the culture around us, but there are also certain things that we do not involve ourselves with the culture, and we are separate from our culture. I would not necessarily call that a subculture, but a, not sure what the right term would be, a subset maybe. In other words, There are certain things we do in our culture that are fine, but there are certain things that are not fine. And so when we go to another culture, let's say there's another culture out here very different from ours, and we're trying to evangelize cross-culturally, there are actually some things that we may have in common with the culture we grew up in but we are not necessarily identifying completely with their culture either because there are some things we can't and in a sense we make a church culture which can embrace several others and yet retain some of its own identity. I'm not sure if that's a totally accurate diagram, but at least it illustrates uh, certain aspects of it. When we think of things that are not either here or there, I could give you several examples. In regard to food, a number of years ago, uh, we had some interaction with a foreign exchange student who came from South Africa. It was a young lady and we gave her employment there at the greenhouse when we were operating that. And in the course of our interaction and work and so on, we uh, we got to talking about foods and what she was accustomed to and what kind of vegetables they were, they grew up with and and she said that in their culture, they do not eat corn. And, of course, in our culture, we do eat corn. And we, we grow it. We, and that's the greenhouse there. We would sell seed corn for, uh, for growing sweet corn. But she said in their culture, corn is animal food. It's strictly animal food. You'd feed it to the chickens or the pigs, but you would not eat corn. Well, guess what? When she came to the United States, she landed in Lancaster County. The first day, they served her a nice big meal which included corn as the vegetable, and that was just about more than she could stomach. Animal food. It's a very different culture. Now, there's nothing, I don't think there's anything wrong with eating corn, but in their mind, it just didn't sit well because you don't eat animal food. Now, my thought, of course, is, well, send them some seed corn for really good sweet corn, and they would learn to change. Well, you're going to have to do more than just give them better corn genetics. You're going to have to change a mindset. We wouldn't think of cooking up some dog food or cattle food for our table. Another thing she struggled with, she said, uh, in their culture, soup is something that is served to infants and perhaps to the very elderly who can no longer tolerate um, or chew solid foods. So, soup is for infants and the very elderly. And here she comes to the States and goes to restaurants and discovers that just about every restaurant in the country you can buy soup for adults. Again, very different. Now as we go into other cultures, it's probably advisable and good to just simply be willing to eat the foods that they eat. There might be certain limits and there are certain things that we can't just automatically jump into for health reasons, Uh, but as we think about going cross-culturally, there are many things about their way of life that we could and should adapt to. They're not in any sense moral one way or the other, and we shouldn't assume that our way of doing things is the perfect way. we should also be willing to change even the things in our culture that aren't what they should be. Um, While we're on the subject of food, we, if we have an Anabaptist culture or background, we tend to eat a lot of food. Some years ago I was speaking to someone who did catering as a business they did catering for a lot of weddings. Most of the catering they did was for non-Christians, unbelievers, just in their uh, general area. But they occasionally did catering for um, people of Anabaptist background. And he said he's learned over, over the years that it requires almost twice as much food for those of an Anabaptist background as it does for the non-Christians. Wow. Now, is that something we should change or not? You can think about that one for a bit. Oh, and where would we fit in that spectrum? Are we different? Or do we eat twice as much food as, as others? And we may just quickly brush that off and say, ah, that's no big deal. I mean, hey, nothing wrong with eating food. And chances are good, uh, maybe that's the wrong term, but chances are high that we will not change that culture real quickly. But if we think about it, what would it take to change that culture? If you're going to change it, it probably means that you personally will need to just change your behavior, the amount of food you consume, and let it be an example to others. Ooh. That that really hits right down to where we live, doesn't it? But we are affected by how people act around us, certain certain cultures and things. Cultures are not neutral. Cultures have consequences. For example, back to the uh, culture in India. They have a worldview that says that reincarnation is real and that the spirits of those who have lived before come back perhaps in the form of animals and therefore they will not kill animals such as beef cows because it may be their ancestor. Now We have a term to describe that system of belief. We refer to those cattle as sacred cows. And it's even become a bit of a term of, uh, would we say scorn almost? Because in our mind, we know that sacred cows really shouldn't be sacred. And it really becomes a problem for these people. And it does. That is is all true. But if you were to go over to that culture and begin to evangelize, you would not start by telling them that this is ridiculous. You have to kill your sacred cows. Well, back to the way we use the term sacred cows, I've heard it used in various um, uh, settings where the concept is that we have a certain strongly held belief that does not really square with what it ought to be. It's not really uh, the value that we place on it. We have some emotional attachment to it and often it's used for some kind of religious um, value that we hold and we call that your sacred cow and nobody dare touch your sacred cow you know because you would throw a fit if if your your thing was touched. Will you see how culture begins to affect views? And I don't think it's God's will for the people, a culture. It's a broken culture. God intended these animals to be utilized uh, for the benefit of mankind. But we don't go over there as an evangelist and start by telling them, now you need to kill all your cows. I'd Rather, you transform their mind and their worldview to something biblical. And if that leads them eventually to utilize their cattle, then fine. But let's not go over and begin by mocking or making fun of their way of belief. Have their mind transformed, change their belief, then it changes values. And eventually, the change of values affects behavior. Another problem they have, another creature is rats. They will not take measures to kill rats, but rather feed them and encourage them because, again, it might be their ancestor. But it is believed that rats will then consume nearly half of the grain that's produced in the country, simply because they refuse to take action against the rats. And eventually, their their beliefs, which affect their values, actually reduce them to poverty in many, many ways. So not all culture, culture isn't just neutral. It's not, it has consequences, the things you believe. We as Christians, when we change our belief, it changes our values, and therefore it affects our behaviors. Just consider, and this may all use a little more of an extreme example that I hope we're not really affected by, but Consider that in our culture here they place a high value on professional sports and the whole uh, sports mania. They'll accept that term, mania. People get so out of their mind because of their uh, enthusiasm for a particular sport. And if you talk about football, they have, let's see, I guess it would be coming up soon sometime as the Super Bowl. And Super Bowl is, you know, that's just the the highlight of the year. And we're going to have a party and we'll have a bunch of friends over and we're going to have plenty of alcohol and we're just going to live it up and have a good time. It's Super Bowl day and we're going to party. Now, we have embraced a different belief and that changes our values, and I hope there's no one here that values football to the point where you get all enthused about Super Bowl. And if, you're not in, if you don't value that, then your behavior um, is different. Those who value that whole mindset will flock to their friend's house and they will party and they'll cheer for their team or whatever and get all enthused about this because they value it. Well, if we don't value it, we can shun it and we'll put it away because, as believers, our value system is different. And in that sense, we are very different than our culture. I refer back to our uh, one passage here in 1 Peter 4 2, where It says, the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when ye walked in lasciviousness. And if we just compare this now to the Super Bowl, as I understand a lot of the TV programming and the ads and the halftime show and everything has all kinds of lasciviousness being stirred up. And lusts, excess of wine, all the alcohol consumed revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Well, that should be the testimony of all true believers. They separate themselves from the culture in ways that are not honoring to God, and they live a different kind of life. That was true of the early church The Romans, as a whole, testified that these people do not go to the same shows. They do not go to the carnivals and the theaters, which in that day was the Colosseums. They don't go to the races. Why? Because they're following a different culture. They have a different value system. And they shun the ways of the world. That should be our testimony, too. So as we go in, as evangelists, into other cultures. Let's just be very clear that cultures are not neutral and we need to make some choices and decisions and to discern between what is acceptable to partake of in their culture and what is not acceptable, and what is not godly. Many of the cultures around the world, um, for example, Islam, is both a religion and a culture, and it's also a government system. It encompasses the whole sphere of life. They don't separate church and state in the, in the concept that we have it. It's all wrapped up in one. And therefore, some of the things that um, some people would pass off as just culture is actually very heavily influenced by their belief system and are things that we might not be able to adopt if we were attempting to evangelize in their culture. We need to be discerning. Back to the question. That was addressed to Barry Grant. You're not trying to make Mennonites out of them, are you? Well, that raises should should raise some interesting discussion, maybe and profitable discussion. Is do we value the things that we believe? And do we hold them uh, as we ought, or are we ashamed? Are we ashamed of the things we believe? And if we go out into the world and, and bring them the gospel, shouldn't the life that we live represent what that gospel is? And should not our life be a very pattern? for what it means to walk with God and and what needs to be done to get to heaven? Wouldn't that be important for us? And I think we would say in our mind, yes. Now, in our value system, There are some things that are non-negotiable, and there are some things that are neither here nor there, and in between, there are some things that, i not sure what the term I want is, but it's. It's those things that Paul talked about that said they are lawful, but are not expedient. And it's important for us to be able to discern what, what those things are. Now, we might, uh, in going to another culture, well, we say we, we don't want to make Mennonites of them. Well, what do we really mean by that? Uh, we do want to make believers of them, don't we? We want them to change their uh, beliefs. We want them to change their values and have their value system adjusted according to what is godly. And then we want them to live out what that godliness is. Will that make them look like Mennonites? Well, it might. Maybe not entirely, And maybe we kind of uh, shy away from that. But it really gets to the heart of things when we ask ourselves the question, are we ashamed of what we believe and practice? Is it not something we can recommend to others? Well, let's think about um, what we choose to do in our value system, and the choices we make, in our practices, whether it be the, the kind of things we buy, the things we wear, the, uh, even the amount of food we eat, uh, all, all the life choices that we make, there are in them things that may be lawful, but are not expedient. And what what is our really our end goal. If our end goal is to uh, is to get to heaven with the least personal cost. In other words, I don't want to be too different. I don't want to be. Uh, I don't want to bear any more reproach than I have to. I don't want to be made uncomfortable. Uh, I don't really want to change more than just what's required to make it there. If we go through life with that mentality, we're going to have problems, and we're going to be chafing at every every little additional thing that we feel might be asked of us or required. You know, Jesus, in the various parables that he gave, made it clear that there's a certain mindset that must be embraced. And I have to think of the parable where he gave his goods unto his servants. To one he gave five talents, to another two and to another one. And we recognize in that parable that not everybody was given the same amount. But the requirement for all was the same, occupy till I come. And so the first who had five, he went out and he gained five more. And the other one who had two went out and gained two more. And the other one that had one went out and gained one more. Oh, no. No, that's not how the story goes. He buried his talent. Something changed. How was he different? It wasn't that the one he had had no value. It was what he did with it and his mindset in it. Now when the Lord came back, he asked an accounting for all three. The one that had five came and gave an account, and he said what he had done. He went out, he took his Lord's money, and he gained five more, and that he was commended. The one who had two did likewise. He had gained two more, and he was commended. The third one had buried his talent because he said, I knew that you were a hard taskmaster. I knew that you were a hard one difficult to please, expecting things that were unreasonable, and I just went and hid it. You see, it was his mindset. Now, I think the third the third man there who buried his talent, he believed that his Lord was coming back. He believed that an accounting would be required. I I think we can assume that he he believed that it would be necessary to give an account but somehow he had not considered his lord's desire in the matter Another parable Jesus gave was that of the soils the first soil was the hard stony ground the second was, um, was it, the stony ground? Well, first was the path, the very hard beaten path, and the second was the stony ground, and then the, and then the thorns, and then the last was the fruitful ground. And you know, in the first, the hard-packed path, the birds came and snatched it away, no fruit, The second seemed to have a good start. It sprang up quickly, but it didn't endure because it had no depth of earth. It went away, no fruit. The third one, it sprang up and looked even better for a while, but eventually it got choked out and also no fruit. And then the last fell on good soil And it says it brought forth some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Now, as you think about those different soils, again, it comes back to the condition of the heart, of the mind, and the attitude. And I thought, on the good soil, it says that some brought forth 30, some 60, and some 100. Have you ever pondered why the difference? And was there any reproach for that which brought forth only 30? And some which brought forth 60? Several examples that came to mind. first one is how different cultures view money. and In my business I interact with people from various backgrounds and I found just made some interesting observations. What I would call the typical American culture. If I have a customer that would fit in that category They will ask me about my services. Let's say it's uh, putting up gutters, and they will ask me, so how much will this project cost me? And so I calculate it up, and I give them a price, and then they will say, uh, perhaps on the spot, they'll say, that sounds fine, let's go ahead. Uh, But they may also say, I'm getting several other estimates, and I will get back to you on what I decide. Yeah, I've learned that's that's typical, normal American way of of looking at the cost of a project. But I know that if I go to somebody who belongs to a different culture set, a bit different from the mainstream American culture, and they ask me to come out and give them a price, one of the Instead of asking me what the total price is going to cost, they'll ask me, so how much do you charge per foot? They want to know the details of how this is calculated. And I've done my own reasoning as to why this might be is because I I assume that they're suspicious somehow that there was there might be a better rate to be had somewhere. And I know that in that culture, it would almost be a shame to have spent more than was absolutely necessary. Because if you were able to find that same, uh, same piece of goods for a lesser price, you've, uh, you've done well. And if you have spent more on that necessary item, uh, you know, you might you might not look as good in the eyes of your fellow uh, people. There's another uh, culture that I also deal with and they have a little different approach. Again, it's not quite the mainstream American culture. And when I give them a price, I can almost expect, and this is, there are several different cultures that, that this comes into focus, but they will say, well, okay, if, if it's going to cost me this much, how about if you would add this over here for the same price? Just, you know, add a little extra service and still charge me the same amount. And they're always looking to bargain. They want, they want a little more for what they're paying. And it's it's interesting interacting with all these different ones and, and their approach, but again, the culture in which they operate affects how they look at things. And I'm not saying that all of this is all bad or wrong or that uh, the mainstream American culture is the perfect way to do it, but it has caused me to um, to reevaluate myself when I'm on the other side of the equation, when I'm the one who's doing the buy. What kind of impression am I leaving on the one who is selling to me? Is it a biblical impression? And several verses that come to mind in Proverbs, it talks about um, the buyer who says, It is not, it is not, but then he goeth his way and boasteth. The practical explanation for that seems to be that when you're trying to deal for a price and you're trying to get the price down and you kind of minimize its qualities or point out its flaws and defects and try to get a better price, and then when you've negotiated the lowest price, you go your way and begin to boast to others how great a deal you, you had and you got. Well, it's because you, you know, you shoot him down to a, a lesser price. But according to Proverbs, that's not a good testimony. That's not the way we should go about our business. So again... Culture might dictate a certain thing, but is it biblical? Is it the right way? And there's, you know, you go to another culture and across the ocean somewhere where negotiating is always the expected. I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to negotiate or that we're compromising our beliefs, but we do need to make sure that we maintain a biblical perspective in how we go about our transactions, and our business. What gospel are we living? I'm not sure if I lost you there, but just trying to clarify and draw together several of these As I was considering how people view money, and their and how they value getting the lowest price, do we approach our Christian life and and our choices in life in the same way, where? Um, Or we want to get to heaven at the cheapest price possible. When we're thinking about what it costs me and the things I need to sacrifice and the things I need to do in order to please God. Am I trying to get to heaven on the cheap? You know, Jesus said, Except you be willing to forsake all that you have, you cannot be my disciple." Now, more than any one thing or issue in life, that speaks of an overall mindset. We have to be willing to pay the price. And if we're at every turn of the road thinking, oh, this costs too much. No, I can't do that. Or I can't do this. We're not really embracing the picture of a man who is intent to get the most value for his master and to give and to live in a way that produces the results. I think I'll close with that. It's There's much more that could be said and probably would take several messages to really um, look at the whole scope of this question, but I hope it stirs up your mind and your thinking to grapple with some of these realities. What is my approach to culture? What values do I hold? And just begin to make choices and decisions that, um, that affect my interaction with culture.